up? We're Power Man 5000, and you are watching Music Mix USA. Shoot it, shoot it out, cause they want it, want it now, now. Shoot it, shoot it out, cause they want it, want it now. Shoot it, shoot it out, cause they want it, want it now, now. Shoot it, shoot it out, cause they want it, want it now. Shoot it, shoot it out, cause they want it a little more. You can be rest assured. You give them all you got, and you give them a little more. And never even know what for.
watching this a night away. I've been praying for something from above to come down and save me. It's been a long one, working for the man all day. It's been a long one, dying just to get away. We're AA. Blitzer, roll up the dice. Your luck's finally run. You're picking your lucky numbers, cause you're lucky number one. Digging into your pockets, scraping, scraping every hole. For the things that you wanted, you're at the bottom. is the captain of a motion picture ship, guiding and supervising a talented team of technical and creative professionals.
Randall Wallace graduated from Duke University. After moving to California, Mr. Wallace began writing for television before moving on to writing the screenplays for Braveheart and Pearl Harbor, as well as directing We Were Soldiers. Hi, I'm Randall Wallace, director of Secretariat. You're watching Made in Hollywood, and here's a scene from Secretariat. In frenzied excitement, he eats up the ground. He paws fiercely, rejoicing in his strength, and charges into the fray, afraid of nothing, when the trumpet sounds. Using Secretariat as an example, can you take me through the process of being a director for a film from beginning to end? I didn't have any aspiration of directing films. I love being a storyteller. And, uh, and then I loved to write songs, and that's how I started. And I became a writer, and then I became a producer, and then I wanted to make the stories just exactly the way I wanted and combine all the elements of music. Uh, and then uh, I decided I wanted to be a director. Our father's farm has been losing money for years to run a horse breeding operation. They need a certain touch. Uh, I had an experience I'll share with you about you know, when everyone thinks that directors are so sophisticated and cool. And when I first started uh, writing and I took over a television show, I went up and I had this actress who was literally Miss Universe, and she was really unhappy. And I went up to take over the show and talk to her, and, and I got what I thought was an essential ingredient of being a, like a, a writer, director, producer, which was a pair of sunglasses with a, a lanyard to hang my glasses in. My idea was I'd walk up with my sunglasses and I'd say, hi, I'm Randall. And I'd snap my glasses off and I would talk to her and then I'd put them back on very dramatically and walk away. But I walked up and I was really nervous, so I got up and I said, hi, I'm Randall. And I took my glasses off and I said, I know you're not happy, but I'm in charge of this show now. And I'm the one you need to come to if you have any problem, because I'm the one that's going to take care of it. And I snapped my glasses back on, but I was nervously fiddling with my tie. So when I put my glasses back on, I did that in front of Miss Universe. And there was no hole to crawl into that was deep enough. But my point really is there aren't mistakes that you, that you can't come back from. You can't be afraid to make mistakes. People don't remember you for how many mistakes you didn't make. They remember you for what you made them feel. It's what you did right that matters. That, to me, is the biggest thing I can tell anybody about who, who wants to be in, in this career. I don't care how many times they tell us we can't do it. I am not giving up. Secretariat refusing to yield. Now, when you knew that you wanted to be a director, what exactly did you do to get to where you are today? I was a writer. I started writing stories that I wanted to direct, but I had to tell myself to forget that I was going to direct it. Uh, a good friend of mine who had, who, who had been the partner of one of the legends of the business, Steve McQueen, said, don't let Randy the director beat up Randy the writer. Don't, don't start thinking, oh gosh, this has to be even better and better and better. Just do the very best thing you can. Horse racing is unforgiving for housewives. It's like every other multi-million dollar gamble we housewives make every day. <laughs> and action. Everybody in Hollywood who wants to be a director goes around saying, I want to be a director. That doesn't get you anywhere. You have to believe you're a director. It doesn't matter what everybody else thinks. It matters what you think. And if you don't believe you're a director, you'll never do it or anything else. You have to believe first, and then other people can believe it. 
Congratulations, Penny and Secretariat, on the fastest derby ever. Now that you are a director, do you find your job difficult at times? Are there any challenges, or would you say that it's easy for you now? Well, it's, it's, it's easier uh, than it used to be because before I wasn't sure what I didn't know, and now I know there are a great deal of things that I don't know. And the way I do it is I just get the absolute best people I can find who are much more talented than I am in their individual specialties. And, and I, I get them inspired and I get inspired by them. And we make a movie as a family. All right then, let's show them what you're made of. Everybody talks about the director, you know, being the, the filmmaker, but the truth is, if you have great people and they're excited about that project the way these people were excited about Secretariat, you're making it all together, and that's glorious. You're guaranteeing that this horse is going to win the Triple Crown. Three races, three states, in just five weeks. Of course, it's always good to have a good team behind you. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, when we started this movie, we all got in a big circle, the, the, the opening day of this movie, and I said to them, you know, when, when I'm hiring people, I'll look at your resume, and there might be 50 films, but there'll always be one or two that stand out. You know, you'll see Braveheart or Dances with Wolves or, you know, a movie that you go, oh, I really like that one. And, and you hire those people for that reason. And I said to him, I promise you this is going to be the kind of movie that, that people look at. And, and that they believe that is a big part of making that happen. You're about to see something that you ain't never seen before. We're doing this conservation work today to make sure that many years from now, people will still be seeing and enjoying these fantastic works of art. My name is David Olin, and I'm one of four conservators from Olin Conservation, working on the murals here at the Wilbur J. Cohen Federal Building. Behind me is Seymour Fogel's mural, uh, The Wealth of the Nation. Down the corridor is Ben Shahn's Meaning of Social Security. Murals that really represent the legacy of the artists. What we're doing now is repairing subsequent earthquake damage and damage due to continued building settling. The challenge really is, is manifesting the skill in applying these materials in a way that doesn't alter but, but confidently recreates the artist's intention. We're not here to make the works of art look better. We're not here to add our own interpretations. We're here to deal directly, in a, as again, in an objective manner. I don't feel that the work of art speaks to me. I, I don't feel an emotional or, or spiritual relation to the work of art. We're dealing with the artist's materials, not his or hers expression or intent as a work of art. My legacy may be a nameless conservator or a continuation of the legacies of the artists whose work we keep in repair. In that sense, it really isn't, isn't my legacy I'm concerned about. I am an intermittent player in the history of these works of art.
Welcome to Get Real Music Mix, where we bring you your favorite artists and their latest music videos. Don't go away. We've got a great lineup of talent waiting to entertain you. There's Youngest Ones, No Other Name, Ethan Gold, Twin Thing, and Jason Cassidy. Let's get things started with this New Orleans trio that go by the name of The Youngest Ones. The group consists of cousins D Danger, Killa De King, and Supa D. They all grew up in the St. Bernard's projects, and they always stayed together. They all decided to make a choice to choose music over the streets. It seems their choice has paid off, with their fan base growing bigger and stronger every day. Let's hear their latest song, One for the Hustlers. 80. And when you put this song, all my real, real sing this song. I'm in my old school Chevy and I'm cruising through the city and my name is rolling with me tonight, tonight. One time for the real go getters. And when you put this on, all my real sing this song. Gangsta, killer beat. No, no, no. Old school Chevy with the Lamborghini dope. Big bank rolls in my pockets all swole. Got my nose with the pedal to the floor. Call me Mr. Yes, it's like a can't tell me no. And now my front door's got 10 digit code. Dropping that log of love, land wood like wool. Got that corner stone loving luck. She never closed. Cruising through the city and I got my killers with me. Lurking to go get it tonight. See, I'm living that life. Getting it that I like. No pain, no gain like Betty Wright. Walking on some life like a movie, yeah. So and listen to how I do it. Got a game like ran down ties. I'm too slick. Chips like Fritos. Chilling in my beach cold. A probably in the eight. Riding in my peach road. Run on that. Fly it in a G4, fresher than a meat roll at your local meat store. Ask your girl, she know Louis bag sacks fifth. I spent the fat grip, now she doing backflips. Baby, I stack chips, slim with some fat lip. Then that, why my the whole up? I'm in my old school Chevy and I'm cruising through the city. I'm rolling with me tonight, tonight. Cruising, boy. Dipping through the city in my 67 Nova. All the love me cause I treat them like your poster. Polo hit the toe, she say I'm hotter than a toe. I wanna hear so I'm gonna. I'm doing what I wanna. One time for the hustlers that be pumping on the corner. And all the go getters that then bubble from a Tonight my niggas rolling. If you tripping, use a genre. Black is my persona. 
no real gangster from the bricks. His middle finger to your honor. Married to the game, so the streets my only wife. It's Kahe to spill my cause it's the life. One time for the real go getters. And when you put this on, all my real, real sing this song. Coming up now is a group based out of Nashville. While they could have easily found success as a country or pop act, they decided they did not want the style of music they sang to ever be in question. Seems it worked as the Dove Awards nominated this group as New Artist of the Year. Recently, they released their debut album, and we've got a song from it for you now. Here is No Other Name and Let It Start With Me. Use my hand. 
Our next artist is a self-taught composer, singer, songwriter, and musician. After graduating from Harvard in social theory, he returned to San Francisco and built a basement studio. He would play in local bands and write music. He eventually moved to Los Angeles to continue his career. Coming your way now, Ethan Gold and his song, Poison.
They are identical twins, so it's only fitting that they be called Twin Thing. They were born in Nairobi, Kenya, but grew up in Somerset. Now, 20 years old, they are writing and producing their own music. Their sound is a mix of their African heritage and their English upbringing. They write music to inspire, educate, and entertain their audience and fans. Here is Twin Thing in their video, It's a Twin Thing. Stay humble to make it last long And it will end it And it should end it And it tastes and it's good Understood when the word Cause family and friends Have my back till the very end It's twin thing But you already know that Rocking skinny jeans With a matching flat cap And he knows that And she knows that She be staring But she can't help that Man, I can see the view And I wish you was here with you Twin thing, but you already know that. Rocking skinny jeans with a matching flat cap. And he knows that, and she knows that. She be staring, but she can't help that. I know that you know that you think I'm really special. So let's go, full speed. Don't you worry, we'll make it official. I know that you know that you think I'm so let's go, full speed, don't you worry, we'll make it official. It's twin thing, but you really know that, rockin' skinny jeans with a matching flat cap. And he knows that, and she knows that, she was better, but she can't help that. Man, I can see the view, and I wish I was here with you. It's twin thing, but you already know that, rockin' skinny jeans with a matching flat cap. And he knows that, and she knows that. She be staring, but she can't help that. Oh, uh, yeah. Woo! If I had no money, would you still have me? Would you still love me? If I had no money, would you still have me? Would you still love me? Rockin' skinny jeans with a matching flat cap And he knows that, and she knows that She be staring but she can't help that Man, I can see the view And I wish I was here with you
We end our show with Jason Cassidy. He was singing in a karaoke bar when he got noticed. Shortly after that, he was the front man of a popular Houston-area country cover act. It's a far cry from when he was a child when he thought he wanted to be a rock star. After taking guitar lessons, he realized that just wasn't for him. Now he's fronting his own country band. Let's hear a song from him. Here is What If.
We'd like to thank each and every one of you for your support. What we plan to do to repay the favor is keep on providing you with the great artists and their fine music. We'll be back next week and each week thereafter. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Alternative energy sources we talked about so far create electricity. Great. But what do we do with it? How do we store it? And the big challenge, transportation. How do we take electricity out on the road? Electric vehicles offer a way to uh, transition transportation from burning completely oil to using electricity, which can be supplied by green technologies such as wind or solar or things that don't encompass any CO2 at all. Electric vehicles are fun to drive. You get all the power right away, and consumers are going to start to buy these cars for reasons other than just, hey, I don't have to go to the gas station. The Roadster is able to break perceptions on what people think EVs can do. We can accelerate 0 to 60 in under 3.8 seconds. That's quicker than any car you can buy right now at almost any price point. On top of that, it has a range of you know, about 250 miles. How close is battery technology to being as good as it gets? You know, batteries are changing at an amazing clip. They're doubling in their ability to store energy in a given amount of weight and volume about every 10 years. The costs today are very expensive, but as we start to make tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, eventually millions of electric or hybrid electric vehicles, the costs drop significantly into ranges that you'd expect a mass market consumer to be able to afford. Let's just start at the beginning. You're making these batteries from scratch. From scratch. We start with the raw materials, some powder, carbon, lithium, manganese oxide, and various other chemicals. Mix it together with a binder and some solvents, and that becomes the slurry. We have two types, one for a negative and one for a positive. And later on, we'll marry those two together and make a battery. And slurry, it's exactly that. It's a, a mixture of uh, aqueous and powdered material. I think I had that at Dairy Queen once. It could, could it very the, well be. Maybe it was a mixed slurry, I can't remember. We're just at the very beginning there. We've made our first major technology leap as we've moved lithium ion from cell phones into automotive and advanced energy storage applications. But we're just scratching the surface on the advanced materials and advanced chemistries that we have available. Why is this a big deal? Well, it's a very big deal. We're eliminating the, the use of foreign oil because we're getting rid of the use of gasoline, especially when you go to electrification of vehicles. Less gas, more jobs, more growth. It's a tremendous win-win for everybody. The battery industry, the lithium battery industry, is based out of Southeast Asia. For us to be able to bring that technology and that industry into you know, central Indiana or into the United States uh, really brings a lot of job power to the United States. I was looking for a job. We had lost a contract and I was out of work. And when I came here, I was given the opportunity. I don't consider myself an environmentalist. I drive a vehicle that probably doesn't get the best gas mileage, but I want, I want to make sure that I'm doing what I can to help my children and their children and their grandchildren. As they grow up and see all the new electric vehicles, I can tell them dad was one of the first to, you know, make the new electric vehicles for the hybrid and, you know, so on and so on. And so, yeah, it'd be great for the kids. For us, a great story for me to tell my kids. 
It's one of those things that the arena that I grew up in, we're farmers. We gotta take care of this world and I wanna see them batteries in my tractor one of these days. Plus I drive a little scooter. I wanna see that in there too. <laughs> For anyone who thought electric vehicles couldn't get decent range or serious performance, let me tell you, these things are for real. Another option for zero emission transportation is hydrogen fuel cells. Like a battery, a fuel cell provides electricity to an electric motor. Hydrogen fuel cells, give me a brief explanation. Fuel cells in some ways are pretty simple. Um, the key concept to understand is there's a membrane in each fuel cell. They're kind of like sandwiches and the meat of the sandwich is called a, a membrane that allows ions like protons to go through it, but electrons can't go through it. It's an electronic insulator. Wait, 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 wait. I was not... told there would be no chemistry here. <laughs> the movement of electrons is electricity, and so we're making electrons move to, from where they're provided to where they're needed, and in doing so, they're powering the electric motor by taking this path around the membrane. Okay, I think I got it. Inside a fuel cell, hydrogen from a tank combines with oxygen from the air to produce water, H2O, and enough energy to power a bus. While it currently takes hours to charge a battery, hydrogen fuel cell vehicles can be refueled in minutes. On the other hand, fuel cells are even more expensive than batteries. And hydrogen stations? That would mean a whole new infrastructure. In places like California, where we have lots of off-peak wind power that we really don't uh, find very useful, we could make hydrogen with that off-peak wind power. It could be very economically competitive. Most of the experts we spoke with agree. We need to invest in building the things we already know how to build. Electric cars, clean energy like solar and wind, and efficiency throughout the system. Government can take the lead by creating policies and supporting the development of these innovations. By creating and selling these clean energy solutions to the rest of the world, we can help prevent climate change globally while also boosting our economy here at home. We can and should do these things for our kids' sake and our own. We came into World War II flying biplanes. And within five or six years, we had jet fighter planes. And so when we want to have a technological innovation and deploy something rapidly, if we feel there's enough of a threat, we can do it quickly. We know this market is going to be growing in these new energy technologies. America needs to be the country that is making them and selling them to the world. What are they going to say at the end of this 21st century about the people, not of Greensburg and Kiowa County, but the people of this earth? My vision is they're going to say they change their ways and they decide to take care of their environment.
in the Verde Valley, and just uh, off behind me here are the Black Hills on the south side of the Verde Valley, dominated by Mingus Mountain. And then over here, more importantly, is a cone-shaped mountain, this reddish mountain back over my shoulder with a J on the side of it. It's known as Cleopatra Hill, and it turned out to be one of the richest hills in the entire West. They took billions of dollars out of there in gold, silver, and copper from, yeah, it began about in the 1870s and all the way until the time the mines closed up there at Jerome in 1953. But it wasn't until about the turn of the century that it really began to boom because here in the valley, even though Spanish explorers had been coming in here since the 1500s and recognizing the wealth of the area, there was no way to get the ore out. So it wasn't until they built a narrow gauge railroad into Jerome that they finally could haul the ore out to the railroad and up to Ash Fork and then get it onto the main line. One of these mines, the Little Daisy, uh, they started out about 1914 and lost money on it. And just to give you an example, uh, two years later, they hit pay dirt, hit a vein five feet wide, and took out of there $10 million, and 75% of it was pure profit. So it started making rich people here, and it made this one of the rich towns in the West. And she stayed pretty prosperous over the years, and finally the town died in 1953 and became one of the West's most famous ghost towns. After a short life as a ghost town, tourists began to discover Jerome, and it took on a whole new life. Shops opened, and today, the town's a going place for tourists. We're gonna to take you up there and show you around. Two best ways to get into Jerome from the Salt River Valley First one, you can come in from Prescott, come out over Mingus Mountain on 89A, and you beautiful trip. You drop down right into the town of Jerome. The other way to get in here is to come up I-17, turn on 260, and just come on over 89A, and then just drive right up the mountain, four miles up from Clarkdale, and there you are in downtown Jerome. I'm standing here in downtown Jerome with Christine Barrick, and she's the president of the local chamber of commerce, and we're going to kind of take you on a little tour. Christine, I, I guess your family goes back a long ways here in Jerome. My grandparents were born here in Jerome, and so I graduated from the same high school that my grandmother graduated from, that my mother graduated from, and our family has been here for a long time and actually are still in the valley here. Well, Jerome's quite a famous town, one of the most famous mining towns in the West, and I guess you get people coming in here from all over the world to, to see this uh, hillside city. Well, we have people from Germany, Japan. Uh, last week we had people from Scotland. Uh, it's different every single day. A lot of people in the United States come traveling here, Florida, Minnesota, all over. They come here to Jerome because they've either heard about it, read about it, or somebody's told them about it. Now, we're going to take you around and show you. What do you say we uh, head on down the road here? Okay, well... We'll go toward Jerome. Back around World War I, they discovered a rich body of ore right underneath the town of Jerome itself, and they began to tunnel and blast. Eventually, they would blast hundreds of thousands of tons of dynamite and the old town, along with the, um, uh, uh, the buildings here, began to slide downhill. There was no foliage left to hold anything, and, and pretty soon she just began to slip. And, and 
part of it here, uh, Christine, is uh, uh, about all that's left, I guess, is the old jail. All the original buildings were up on Main Street at one time, and when that started happening, the mine company bought a lot of those businesses out. The only thing that was left was our famous sliding jail. It slid 225 feet from its original location up on the Main Street to where it now stands today. One of my favorite Jerome stories was uh, after the uh, big boom of the 1920s, the Great Depression came and the price of copper fell to almost nothing. And uh, at the same time, Jerome was, was sliding and uh, Mayor Harry Mater uh, uh, coined a, a new phrase for the town. He said, Jerome is a city on the move. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that would fit at that time. Um, but it was all going downhill. <laughs> all going downhill. I don't know where we're at today, but I think we're doing better. <laughs> Christine, that's an interesting looking house down there. Uh, I think I've heard about that before. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, a lot of this area in here was known as Mexican Down. It was segregated up here in Jerome. So there was different sections of town with different ethnic groups. And at one time, the pastor of the Methodist Church didn't want the Mexicans um, attending his services. So the, they got together, and they didn't have enough money for lumber, so they used old scrap dynamite boxes, and they built that, and that was known as the Mexican Church, the Powder Box Church, as we all know it today. It's now a private residence, but it was originally used as the Mexican Methodist Church. And I see looking out on that peninsula is a, is a familiar uh, place. I remember playing high school sports out there against the old Mingus High School. And um, I remember a baseball field out behind that uh, school there that went out on the peninsula. And left field was a real short distance away. But I do remember hitting one over that fence one day. And uh, uh, I swear it went all the way to Clarkdale, four miles below. Well, I want just for the record, I think uh, I, my, I maybe wasn't the only one that hit a home run, but I did hit one four miles. And uh, I don't think Mickey Mandler, Babe Ruth, or any of them ever did that. <laughs> I doubt it. Not hitting it off the mountain from up here in Jerome. You know, this town was so interesting. It was on a slope like this, and whenever it would, uh, uh, there would be a fire down here, it would just burn right up through and burn up the town, and the next day the they'd town. start all over again and build it over exactly. again. Exactly. In the years between 1897 and 1899, the whole town was destroyed by fire three times in a row. <laughs> there is a story told all over about uh, the famous House of Joy, that it was a house of prostitution, but... A lot of us think that that's just part of the myth. Uh, uh, Christine, what is your take on that? Uh, I only remember it as being a private residence. I think they kind of made a play on the name of the red light district up here in Jerome, which has done a good thing for their reputation. Um, it was known for years as one of the best restaurants in the state, but they have recently turned it into retail space. But a lot of people still come here to look at the House of Joy thinking that it was a, a red light district place, and I don't think it ever was. People always ask us how Jerome came back after being a ghost town for a number of years, and everybody always says the hippies moved in. Well, yeah, they moved in, but they basically got the town going again, and there was lots of artists here, and we, and we were known as an artist community, and that started in the late 60s, and we're still known as an artist community today. The thing about Jerome is that we still have a lot of our historic buildings, whereas a lot of towns don't have them anymore. And part of that is because in 53, when the mine shut down, the Historical Society formed, and what was happening was the mine company was tearing down some of their buildings because they didn't want to pay taxes on it. So the group of people that got together formed the Historical Society, bought a lot of these buildings on Main Street and had them restored as retail space and uh, 
that's what saved them from being torn down. It became a historic landmark in 67. And you can't just come to, to Rome and build something new. Everything has to be restored to look like it used to in the old days, that you're not going to come to town and you're not going to find a franchise, hopefully, and that it keeps it historic because that's what draws people here. We still have a small town feel up here. We have lots of organizations in town, and one of the main reasons they keep going is they're all volunteer run, and it's people giving of their time and their love to keep this town going. I believe back in the 1890s, this town was probably larger than Phoenix. Yeah, I'm not sure what the population was then. I, I know our highest was in 29 when it was 15,000 people living up here at one point. Jerome has one of those unusual place names. Uh, uh, who was Jerome named for? Jerome was named for Eugene Murray Jerome. He was one of the main financial backers of the mines, and the only way he would put money into the mines is if they named the town after him. But he never actually came here. He never wouldn't came you, here. Wouldn't you go see a town if it was named after you? Hi, I'm Marshall Tremble. Hi, my name's Wes. Welcome to the Douglas Mansion. We're here in the Douglas Museum and uh, looking at a wonderful model that's created. This is a microcosm of what Jerome was, uh, top and bottom. It's the only way you'll be able to, to get an idea of just what was underneath the town, the rich ore bodies underneath, really, Cleopatra Hill. Over here, uh, we have uh, the Little Daisy, which was uh, the Douglas family met, uh, uh, mining venture. And then over on the other side, beneath where the open pit is today, was the rich body of ore that uh, Clark's uh, United Verde mine, uh, that was William Andrews Clark's mine. So we have two, as we mentioned earlier, we have two families here, the Clark's and the Douglas. Uh, so it was a two-company town. Christine, what was the deepest? I see some of these went down over 4,000 feet, but uh, what was the deepest one we here? We actually had one that went down to 5,200. Uh, so, that's so a mile, mile, or a mile, mile down yeah. into the earth, that's a long haul. What did this used to be, this uh, famous old building here? Uh, this originally was the United Verde Hospital. Uh, it opened January of 27 and it closed in 1950. So it closed just before the mine uh, uh, left Jerome then? Right, the mine officially closed in 93, but they were... Uh, scaling everything down and they were getting the hospital down in Cottonwood brought up to par because mm -hmm. they were putting this one out of service. Yeah, I remember that one, yeah, yeah. Well, you hear these stories in these old hotels about ghosts and everybody wants to hear about ghosts and so um, um, you got you got some resident ghosts here? Well, we uh, it's, it's certainly been rumored that we do and uh, enough things have happened here where I think we've held on to a couple. Well, everybody likes a friendly ghost. I mean, uh, most, most ghosts I know are pretty friendly. Uh, and uh, it's always kind of nice to think that uh, the ghost of Marilyn Monroe or something might come up and blow in your ear uh, during, uh, during your stay here or something like that. Well, what we like to say is if uh, everybody that does check in does check out. Our railroads played a very important part in Arizona's history. Without the railroads, they couldn't haul in the equipment, haul the mining, the ore out. And, and um, without the railroads, there just wouldn't have been any place like Jerome, rich town. My father was an engineer on this railroad line, brought the trains in here, and uh, I guess he'd probably turn over in his grave if he saw an excursion train going through the area today, but boy, it sure is a wonderful change travel down this railroad where this old line used to be and just take a turn into yesterday. All aboard!
I want to introduce you here to my friend Jackson. He just looked, he looks like my old pappy, who was a railroad engineer. Jackson, you look like a railroad man here. Uh, can you can you give me a little blow on that train whistle? Atta boy. Uh, somebody taking a ride on the Verde Valley Railroad. What uh, what can they expect, Teresa? Well, they're going to expect to see a lot of eagles. They're going to see a lot of wildlife. And of course, the beautiful river flowing through the canyon. During the journey, they go through a 680-foot man-made tunnel that was built back in 1911. Uh, they're going to have excellent service on board the train. We have a car attendant inside as well as a car attendant outside in our opener viewing cars. traveling on this train is you have a seat inside and you have a seat outside so you can go out see all the scenery the Indian ruins all of the things inside the canyon and then go inside have something to eat use the restroom and be really comfortable Oh, you're not from Arizona, then? You've, no. you've come no, no, all the way no. from uh, Philadelphia just to ride the train or see Arizona? Yes, see Arizona. Just about. And the Grand Canyon. <laughs> ah, this is your first stop? Yes. 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 How long are you going to be in Arizona? Well, we're leaving tomorrow. tomorrow. We're going back to eight inches of snow. <laughs> yeah, we don't even know what that is out here, even in the cold country this year, but uh, I'd like the railroad. I love it. It's beautiful. First time in 40 years. Hi. It's beautiful. Beautiful scenery. I'll tell you, we love it. We'll be coming back. <laughs> oh, thanks, and thanks for talking to me. Thank, Thank you. you.
Boy, what a ride. Beautiful scenery. We got to see the bald eagle, just about everything you can imagine out here. It was a real great train ride today. And for those of you that like to come up here and take a ride on this railroad, uh, you can uh, come up I-17 uh, all the way up to the Verde Valley to Camp Verde and then make a turn to your uh, left on 260 and head right into Cottonwood and then just follow the signs right into Clarkdale. Right here in downtown Clarkdale, nestled between Cottonwood and Jerome, I'm standing in front of the Bank of Arizona. Right here on this site was the greatest bank robbery in the whole history of the state up to this time. Two Oklahoma bank robbers named Willard and Forrester decided to pick payday to rob the bank. They took them for $40,000. Well, walking around the corner was a 70-year-old lawman named Jim Roberts. Jim Roberts was one of the famous lawmen in Arizona history. He was top gun during the Pleasant Valley War, and after that one was over, he became a lawman here in Yavapai County. On that day in 1928, these two outlaws decided to hold up the bank just as Jim Roberts was walking around the corner. By this time, Jim Roberts was 70 years old, but he still packed a gun and still walked the streets as constable here in Clarkdale. Well, as the robbers got ready to jump in their car, they fired off a shot at the lawman, it ricocheted off the sidewalk, and he drew his revolver, and as the car was speeding away, he shot the driver right in the head. The car careened off the road over here, bound by the school, and um, the other outlaw jumped out and gave up, and thus ended the robbery. Jim Roberts, as I said, was one of the great lawmen of all time, and uh, this happened to be his last hurrah, I guess, as a lawman. He died on the job just a couple of years later. They were here for over 300 years at their peak. That's longer than the United States has been a country. They were probably extended family groups, maybe 15, 20 people at any one time. They started building it around 1100, and uh, we think it took probably about 100 years to build. I'm here with Bob Del Carlo from the National Park Service, and uh, we're here at Montezuma's Castle. Now, when I'm telling people they want to see something kind of close to the interstate where they don't have to go too far out in the backcountry, uh, the best place to go see a real prehistoric ruin is right here at Montezuma's Castle. Bob, tell us a little bit about this place, the, uh, the people who came uh -huh. here. and Well, it was a uh, prehistoric culture uh, called the Sanawa. Uh, we don't know what they called themselves because they didn't leave any written records. They were here about 700 A.D. till the early 1400s, and then they moved on. They, they left the area. Uh, if you take the structure of Montezuma Castle out of that cliff, it goes back about 34 feet. So it's, it's a big natural opening in the cliff facing the south where you get a lot more of the warmth of the sun in the uh, wintertime. And I think they were opportunistic. They decided to build a high-rise apartment building uh, in that uh, large uh, cliff area. We, we talk about this site as Montezuma's castle. There's no connection with the Aztec emperor Montezuma. Uh, he was never in this area. In fact, he wasn't even born when these people left the area. But the name stuck. 
and so we call it Montezuma's Castle. I imagine the local folks down here at Fort Verde and the settlers down there must have just, that's probably the only Indian, early Indian they'd ever heard of. That's so. exactly what it was. They, they assumed that it must have been built, the structure must have been built by the Aztecs. Uh, they built it a little at a time as they uh, needed more room and uh, they used uh, chunks of limestone rock and then they mortared uh, the rock with mud and clay from the stream bed. I'm standing here among the stately uh, Arizona sycamore trees that grow along the riparian areas throughout Arizona and extending clear down even into Mexico. These white bark trees are pretty remarkable. They live a long, long time, hundreds of years, and um, in fact, uh, once they're seasoned, they make such good beams that they're used right here in Montezuma Castle, and those beams made from these sycamore trees are still supporting up there after 700 years. Imagine we have some youngsters watching. They're probably going to want to ask, uh, how did they get up there? Well, that's interesting that you, you asked that question. That's one of the most common questions that we get from visitors. Uh, how did they get up there? We think they probably fashioned a series of ladders, uh, perhaps making some of the ladders with the yucca fiber, uh, making a rope from the yucca fiber. It's a, a very common plant in this area. And then they would go from ledge to ledge. There's a trail right up on that ridge that takes you to the real large ledge. And then from that point, they probably would have a series of ladders. Now, we know also the Hohokam were in here too. Uh, were, they, were they neighbors? Were they good neighbors? They were uh, neighbors, and they were very influential to the Sanawa. We think that the Hohokam, which was a culture that was in the Phoenix area, were, and were very much noted for their irrigation technology. And as they came up into this area, again, around 7800 800 A.D., uh, they uh, uh, were uh, very important in developing some irrigation uh, ditch systems. We know that they farm because uh, we find on the site the large uh, flat grinding stones called matates. And if you look closely at the matate, it has a trough shape. Uh, dug into the center of it. And that indicates formal agriculture because you're grinding corn back and forth. They also found corn cobs up in the castle. Uh, some of the first people that explored Montezuma Castle found these little corn cobs. Uh, they also uh, hunted and gathered. They gathered wild plants such as the yucca, the agave, the pinion nuts from the pinion pine, uh, the mesquite trees uh, which produce uh, Oh, as many as 30, 40 pounds of seeds uh, of uh, um, uh, lagoons, they, they collected those. And so they did quite well uh, uh, living here. And we call the area that's bordering this uh, stream, Beaver Creek, we call it a riparian habitat. And riparian habitats are the, uh, the little desert uh, stream courses throughout the southwest that are almost like ribbons of life. Uh, they're lush, verdant. Uh, have tremendous biological diversity and are very special places. Now, I might just mention that in the last hundred years, we've lost about 90% of these riparian habitats. So they are very precious, very special places. 
and need to be protected. Uh, they went into decline eventually, you know, like all cultures do. And uh, tell me a little bit about uh, that and what your maybe what your thoughts are on why they went into decline and where they went. Right. We think that they probably just wore the area out. Uh, they were here again at their peak for over 300 years. And as far as the Verde, entire Verde Valley, there might have been as many as five to 10,000 people uh, through these cultures. And we think that they... Um, you know, they didn't have uh, uh, the uh, wastewater treatment plants that we have today, uh, solid waste disposal. Uh, they perhaps uh, were beginning to uh, have problems with their farming, exhausting the soils. We know that there was a severe drought in the late 1200s, and perhaps more people started coming into the Verde Valley to take advantage of the perennial water. Uh, perhaps overpopulation pressures were uh, occurring. Uh, in sickness, a disease. Then in the late 1300s, there was a series of floods in the Verde Valley, and that might have been the final straw. Perhaps it just wiped out their farming system and, and uh, created havoc. At any rate, they did move on. Even though these people left the area and uh, uh, moved off to another area, there's still a connection with today's uh, Native American people uh, we think that the, uh, or the Hopi uh, feel that there's a connection with the Sanawa, that uh, perhaps the Sanawa were ancestors uh, of their uh, people. And um, they often will come here to the site to do religious ceremonies. They go over to the well. The Yavapai Apache uh, feel a connection with uh, uh, the people that were here hundreds of years ago and uh, they will also conduct ceremonies. And so I think that's a kind of a special thing that there's this connection uh, with, with these different, uh, with the cultures of today with the Sanawa. are taking big steps to change the world one test tube at a time next on discoveries and breakthroughs come on Mio, get in the mix claire dworsky is a typical nine-year-old but what she found out on the soccer field is making history i like testing things and finding out the truth claire was the youngest scientist presenting her research at the american geophysical union meeting she scored an invite after a startling discovery in her hometown soccer field when I look down, the ground is murky, so I wanted to test it out with science, and I went on to Kids Science Challenge. Claire was curious about the difference in the quality of water running through turf versus natural grass. With the help of Earth scientist and oceanographer Adina Payton, Claire launched the largest study of its kind. She found the chemicals in the runoff water of both fields sometimes exceeded recommended levels set by the Environmental Protection Agency. Mostly, I was most impressed by the fact that the project stemmed from her own observation, from her own encounter with the surroundings. You shouldn't put the grass um, or the turf near water because it can um, 
cause eutrophication, which is when it causes a dead zone, and, um, and it can kill aquatic life. Another standout, fourth grader Olivia Smith Donovan. My mom made me keep a journal of any ideas I had. Such an idea landed Olivia first place at the 2010 Kids Science Challenge for bio-inspired design. She's helping to create a model big enough to be used to drop emergency packages from great heights. She was inspired by maple tree seeds, which twirl around as they fall to the ground. She teamed up with engineers at the University of Maryland to create a prototype. Well, we had no idea if a paper tree was actually going to was actually going to stick with the original plans and spin, but we were all kind of surprised that it actually worked. And then the biodegradable one. Olivia and Claire, just two of the young, great minds shaping the world today. One idea, one challenge, many possibilities. For Claire's mom, it's just that simple. Take a couple minutes and dinner will wait. You know, it's important to indulge their curiosity. I'm Alex Kane reporting. This time on The Greats, football legend David Beckham, the comic genius of Peter Sellers, Kiwi aviator Gene Batten, and political heavyweight William Jefferson Clinton. But first, Judy Dench. British theatre is full of venerable great dames. Perhaps the most loved of them all is Dame Judi Dench. But as if her untouchable position as Queen of the English stage wasn't enough, in her 60s, her film career suddenly reached new heights. I never really go by the script. I only go really by the people I'm going to work with. And that's what mm. swayed me. And I'd read the book beforehand, which was just a stroke of luck. Never read anything, just go by the people. Now in her 70s, at a time when many actresses her age would be slowing down, Judy continues to go from strength to strength. Since 1998, this multi-award winning performer has picked up a staggering six Academy Award nominations, most recently for Notes on a Scandal. I, th I think it's terrific to be nominated. I think it's wonderful to be nominated. And you think, good gracious. I mean, it does take you aback a bit like that. But then it, it, it starts, you know, then people speculate, and then that's very... And you have to talk about it all the time. You have to talk about it, and, and it's all speculative. And then, you know, then you think, well, just, just either announce it and then and say, yes, this is, these are the nominations. But it's the speculation that comes up to it, which is tiring, I think, and, and not really um, my scene. Continuing to divide her time between television, theatre and film, Judy seems to wow the critics and audiences with everything she does. She is loved as much for her partnership with Jeffrey Palmer in televisions as time goes by, as she is for her stage work in plays like David Hare's Amy's View in 1997. But she's frustrated by the lack of good roles for women of a certain age. I just hope there are more of them. 
you know, that, that there are never enough. There are too many of us and too few roles to play. The James Bond franchise did its best to fill this gap by rewriting the role of Bond's boss, M, originally created by the very male Bernard Lee, especially for Judy, in 1995's Golden Eye. Famously modest and unassuming, she still admits to feelings of insecurity about her craft, although is quick to leap to the defense of her colleagues when she thinks they are being unfairly criticized. When Daniel Craig first took on the iconic role of James Bond, he faced a barrage of abuse. Judy was incensed, claiming, it's despicable and disgusts me. He is a fine actor, and his critics will be proved wrong. And she was right. Casino Royale became the highest grossing Bond film ever, and was also a critical success. While her film career has taken on a momentum all of its own, her off-screen life has not been quite so kind. In 2001, lung cancer claimed her 65-year-old husband, Michael Williams. Judy once said of their 30-year marriage, we were just happy to be in the same room together. In 2005, Judy starred with Bob Hoskins in Mrs. Henderson Presents. She summed up the experiences like being given a wonderful meal full of the things you love most. The admiration was mutual. Friends of mine have been researching the, the you know, the, the windmill for years. They said, we can't do anything with it, can you? And I sort of looked through it, and I thought, well, if we get Judy, we can do it. It'll be a winner. And we got Judy. Judy was inspired by the true story of Laura Henderson, a wealthy and eccentric socialite who purchased a theatre in pre-war Britain and made it a success by presenting shows with nude female performers. I think she was an extraordinary woman. I think she'd be extraordinary in any age, because I think she's a real fighter and uh, wasn't content to just sit back and have a, um, uh, an easy and, you know, cushy life going out to lunch and being on committee, she didn't like that. Six Laurence Olivier Awards, three BAFTAs, a Golden Globe, a Tony, and an Oscar. There can be no doubt that Dame Judi Dench really is one of the world's greatest actresses, but she remains unconvinced. Oh, that's good luck. Oh, that's good luck. There's nothing else attached to that. You're lucky enough to be asked. You think, thank God, and go and do the next thing. the world's most recognized footballer, a fashion icon, and a marketing machine. In 2007, David Beckham was even voted Britain's greatest ambassador. This won him high praise from national treasure actress Dame Helen Mirren. Best of Britain, what can I say? You know, best of Britain in every way. In every way. He's a, you know, he's a great, great icon for us. I'm very honoured to be here tonight, to just be part of the, the event and to receive the award. I think it's, it's very honouring for, for myself, uh, for my family, and for everyone that's supported me over the years. And, uh, you know, it's such a, a great honour to be in the same room as so many great Britons. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's been an amazing night so far. Beckham's path to success started in childhood, when he followed family tradition by becoming a fanatical Manchester United supporter and serving as the team's mascot for a game when he was just 10 years old. 
Fast forward 20 years, and Beckham is so famous his likeness can be found in a Thai Buddhist temple. Beckham joined Man United's youth side as a teenager and rose up the ranks to reach the Premier League a month before his 20th birthday. Beckham swiftly established himself and played a significant role in the team's Premiership and FA Cup double of 1996. He made his international debut the same year, and following a controversial career that saw him branded as a thug by Britain's rabid tabloids, he was appointed England's captain in 2000. The newspapers changed tack and got behind him, especially when Beckham scored the equaliser against Greece that enabled England to qualify for the 2002 World Cup. He stepped down as captain in 2006 following an injury, but remains on the playing list. Beckham played at United for 11 years, making 265 Premier League appearances and scoring 61 goals. He transferred to Real Madrid in 2003, signing a 35 million euro four-year deal that made him the world's highest paid footballer. But it's not just his footballing exploits that have made Beckham the lucrative commodity he is today. His marriage to Spice Girl Victoria Posh Adams in 1997 created a power couple, and together they've amassed a £112 million fortune. The family own a palatial home near London that's been dubbed Beckingham Palace, and their 1999 wedding photos included shots of the happy couple posing on golden thrones. OK Magazine exclusively covered the ceremony and their life since has been one media circus after another, something apparently welcomed by the publicity-hungry pair. Beckham's move to Spain in 2003 without Victoria and their children caused some strain, and allegations arose of infidelities. So when he took up a highly publicized contract with LA Galaxy in 2007, the whole family moved to Los Angeles. People know that my family comes first, but my football is my life and, uh, and my career. And for me, um, you know, to play good football and, and to stay happy is the most important thing. Also, to, to cap it all off would be a, a trophy with England. Beckham has also opened football training academies in London and Los Angeles, catering for thousands of children. Two-thirds of them are admitted free. Obviously, I'm very proud of, you know, what I've done on the football side, but I'm also, you know, um, working hard, you know, outside of football as well, and uh, that's, that's where my passion also lies, you know, outside of playing football, and uh, I enjoy doing the things that, that I do for kids. Like Beckham himself, the London Academy is built on a grand scale with two full-sized pitches, classrooms and training facilities. And Beckham continues to kick goals in his life as a celebrity, with his name now one of the world's most recognizable brands. His appeal seems to be universal, with Asia as infatuated with him as Europe. There's no question that in the pantheon of comic geniuses, Peter Sellers was one of its greatest talents. But he could also be one of its greatest monsters. Racked by self-doubt and perfectionism, he regularly took out his crippling insecurities on those nearest and dearest to him. Sellers was born in the proverbial trunk in 1925 to a family of entertainers. By the age of five, he was already treading the boards, appearing at London's Windmill Theatre with his mother Peg in a show called Splash Me. His early grounding saw him acquire a range of skills, including dancing, drumming, and playing the ukulele. 
But it was as a brilliantly gifted character actor with a seemingly endless range of comic voices and personas that he really stood out. It was The Goon Show that brought Sellers to the masses. The groundbreaking anarchic radio show ran from 1951 to 1960 and made huge stars out of its three principal cast members, Sellers, Spike Milligan and Harry Seacombe. Hilarious and surreal, its influence on British comedy was profound and lasting. But for the multi-talented Sellers, success was a double-edged sword. Professionally hailed for his masterful characterizations in The Goon Show and movies like I'm Alright Jack, The Lady Killers and Being There, his private life was less certain. He married four times, proposing to his second wife, Swedish starlet Britt Eklund, after seeing her photograph in a newspaper. They married after a whirlwind courtship in 1964. The mid-60s saw Sellers at his professional peak, starring in such disparate but highly regarded films as Dr. Strangelove and The Party and the first couple of Pink Panther movies. But his four-year marriage to Britt Eklund was blighted by abusive behavior and a series of heart attacks that left him permanently weakened. The heart problems appear to have been exacerbated by his problems with substance abuse, particularly the use of amyl nitrates. He was also known to drink heavily and use cannabis. The image of the tortured genius extreme in his affections and actions is a cliched one, but in Seller's case it appears to have been true. Catapulting from the depths of depression, he could be passionate about fast cars and beautiful women. He fell madly in love with Sophia Loren when they co-starred in 1960's The Millionaires, but his adoration was unrequited. He counted luminaries such as Laurence Olivier and David Niven, Roman Polanski and Stanley Kubrick among his friends. Yet another great director, Billy Wilder, was not. Sellers was to appear in Wilder's 1964 film, Kiss Me Stupid, but had to drop out after his heart attack. Later, Wilder and Sellers both did some uncredited script work on 1967's Casino Royale. On hearing of Sellers' failing health, Wilder said, you have to have a heart to have a heart attack. Sellers became engaged to Liza Minnelli in 1973, but ended the relationship after she pulled his wig off in jest. I've been a fan for a long time. He's the only one I think in, in the... He's one of very few people in this industry that takes chances, you see. When you do get married, you'll be the fourth Mrs. Peter Sellers. Does this thought bother you at all? Oh, no. Four is my lucky number, my dear. <laughs> it You're obviously no, it not disillusioned the with the state won, of matrimony. The only time I won anything on roulette right. was when I bet on four. Well, that's it, then. Four. Sellers eventually died from a massive heart attack at the age of 54. He was a complex and mercurial man, and to this day, many friends and family defend him loyally. Sellers once said that when he died, he didn't want to have a memorial service because he didn't believe anyone would turn up. He was wrong. She was called the Garbo of the Skies, and in her time became one of the most popular and famous pilots in the world. 
She was as well known as Amelia Earhart, but sadly, by the end of her life, she died in obscurity. She is Jean Batten, the famous New Zealand aviator. Jean was born in Rotorua in 1909, growing into a beautiful and stylish young woman. When she was 18, the Australian flying ace Charles Kingsford Smith spoke in Auckland, and Jean and her father went to hear him. Jean announced to her astonished father that she was going to learn to fly. At the time, flying was considered a most foolhardy of pursuits. It was dangerous and unpredictable and claimed many lives. Her father thought it preposterous and had no intention of supporting her flying dreams. But Jean had different ideas, and so did her mother, Ellen. In 1930, Jean and Ellen left for London, the centre of the aviation world. Jean joined the London Aeroplane Club and started taking lessons. By December 1931, she gained her private license. She continued to improve her flying skills and eventually gained her commercial license, but was not interested in just flying for a job. She wanted to break records. Her first attempt was in April 1933, where she intended to break the England to Australia record held by Englishwoman Amy Johnson. This ended in disaster when she crash-landed in Karachi. Her second attempt was on April the 21st, 1934. This also failed. But in her third attempt, she was successful. Starting on May the 8th, 1934, she arrived in Darwin 14 days and 22 hours later, breaking Amy Johnson's record by six days. She was received with a rapturous welcome. I do hope that by my flight to Australia, and back again to England, I have done a little to encourage other people to take to flying and to demonstrate that flying is not quite so dangerous a sport or hobby as the majority of people imagine it to be. And I also hope that by my flight, I have done a little to strengthen the bonds of friendship not only between England and Australia, but between England, Australia, New Zealand, and all the dominions and colonies of our empire. Jean's next long-distance flight was across the South Atlantic from West Africa to Brazil. A Scotsman, Jim Mollinson, held the record of 85 hours. She took off from France and after two stops in Africa, arrived in Port Natal, Brazil in 61 hours and 15 minutes, almost a day faster than Mollinson. The public waited expectantly for Jean's next dramatic feat. Their next flight was to be England to New Zealand, which entailed crossing the dangerous Tasman Sea. On October the 5th, 1936, Jean took off from England. She made Australia in six days, setting a new solo record. Her second touchdown was Sydney, where she received a huge welcome. Jean took off from Sydney and arrived in New Zealand ten and a half hours later. Mass crowds of proud and ecstatic New Zealanders received her. This was to be Jean's final long-distance flight. She felt content with her achievements, and the flying world also recognized them, making her the first woman to receive the medal of the Fédération Aéronautique Internationale, aviation's highest honor. For the rest of her life, she lived very privately and died in obscurity in Spain in 1982. However, her achievements have not been forgotten, with Auckland Airport's Jean Batten International Terminal named in her honor.
we have changed the world. It's time to change America. When William Jefferson Clinton became the 42nd president of the United States of America in 1993, he ushered in a new era. Not since the Kennedy years had Americans looked to their leader with such optimism. In fact, young Bill himself had met JFK in 1963 when he traveled to Washington as a boy's nation senator. It was one of the defining moments of his life. Clinton came from a troubled and poor Arkansas family, but at Seldock School, where he was active in student politics and a keen saxophone player. He won scholarships to Georgetown University and University College Oxford, spending two years in Britain studying government. Clinton returned to the US to study at Yale Law School in 1970, where he met future wife Hillary Rodham. After receiving his law degree three years later, he entered politics in his home state of Arkansas. Elected governor in 1978, he lost his bid for re-election four years later, then won back office in 1982. Ten years later, Clinton threw his hat in the ring for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination, running a ticket with Al Gore that offered generational change and fresh vision. But his opponents spread rumors of infidelity and shonky business dealings. Do you feel vulnerable at all anymore on character and trust? What the Republicans say is the issue. Well, I think I've demonstrated both in this campaign and certainly both in my public life at home. And the people who know me best are not worried about it. On this day, with high hopes and brave hearts in massive numbers, the American people have voted to make a new beginning. On November the 3rd, 1992, Clinton defeated incumbent President George Bush and took office the following year. For the first time in 12 years, the same party was in power in both the White House and the Congress. The winds of change certainly swept through the White House. America's new first lady was more interested in promoting her policy priorities than choosing curtains and opening fates. Clinton's agenda focused on bringing the United States closer to the center and his initiatives included imposing a five-day waiting period for Americans wishing to purchase a handgun and cutting taxes to 15 million low-income families. Clinton's foreign policy imperatives included a sustained effort to negotiate peace in the Middle East. He used America's clout to bring the PLO chairman Yasser Arafat and Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin to the table, leading to the historic Oslo Accords in September 1993 which allowed limited self-rule in the Palestinian territories. The following year, his administration was instrumental in brokering a peace agreement between Israel and Jordan. But in a pattern that was echoed throughout his presidency, domestic scandals threatened to undermine Clinton's position. Failed real estate dealings with which the Clintons had been involved became known as Whitewater and Republicans milked the issue for political capital, attempting to smear the couple's reputation and hobble them at the next election. However, Clinton was a popular president, his charisma and easy manner endearing him to people of all backgrounds. A visit to his alma mater in Oxford saw him mobbed by excited students when he received an honorary doctorate, hailing him for being a doughty and tireless champion for world peace. Clinton stood for re-election in 1996 and easily defeated Republican challenger Bob Dole. But it was controversies in Clinton's second presidential term 
that really defined his presidency. There is no person in America tonight who feels more humble in the face of this victory than I do. puppeteer and body performer worked together to create a digital character such as Sid the Science Kid. The movements of the body performer are captured while the digital puppeteer controls the facial expressions and provides the voice. Drew Massey attended California State University Long Beach where he studied illustration, film, and industrial design. He went on to become an actor and puppeteer and currently provides the voice for Sid the Science Kid. Hi, I'm Sid the Science Kid, and you're watching Made in Hollywood. Now here's a clip of my new show. It's time for... Good Laughter News! <laughs> what do you call a roly-poly who wears a badge and helps people? I don't know what. A roly-poly officer! <laughs> Can you explain the Henson Digital Puppetry Studio and how it is used to produce Sid the Science Kid? The, the Henson Digital Puppetry Studio is a system where a puppeteer can take a computer character and a set of controls and connect them and program how those controls affect the character, basically, which allows a puppeteer to move that character in real time, like a puppet. What are some of the differences between traditional puppetry and the puppetry used in the Henson Digital Puppetry Studio? With traditional puppetry, it's very tactile, it's very hands-on. Um, you actually put your hand physically inside a puppet. So it's easier to move your puppet around frame because you have a lot of control over that. Um, as a digital puppeteer, I control the face and the head, and I do the voice at the same time, but the body is all controlled by Misty here. She's great at it, and um, actually when you have a really good performer that you're working with, it makes it pretty easy. I mean, I don't have to take care of any of Sid's, you know, big body movements, which is terrific. I can focus just on his face and the vocal performance. <laughs> Misty Roses majored in communications while she attended UCLA. Ms. Roses had a long career as an actress and stunt performer before becoming the body performer for Sid, the science kid. Misty, how did you become a body performer? Well, I was a gymnast my whole life, and my first job for the movie industry was Congo, and in that character as Amy, I was a gorilla, so I learned um, movement right from the start doing that character. Just you audition for it. I've never done anything like this before in my life. It was extremely 
difficult at first because you're in this space where there's nothing around you and you have to find your body perimeters because they build the characters on top of your frame which is you know outside of you so um, learning how to find that and keep that space and also work with the puppeteer um, luckily I work with Drew who's insanely talented and amazing so um, it's been fun and you just you uh, come to set really quick right on the first days and you really have to create your space, know where everything is even though it's not there and just kind of feel your way through it and uh, you know it's been cool, it's been exciting. And it's tricky and watching Misty it's incredible what she does because she's basically in on an empty stage and so she has to, she has certain markers to sort of mark where different objects are uh, you know in computer space but she has to remember a lot. <laughs> of 3D, like points in 3D space, which is incredible. <laughs> How do you two work so well together when oftentimes you don't know what the other person is going to do or say? Um, with improv, it's a little bit trickier, but we've, you know, known each other. It's magic. <laughs> um, but no, we just, um, you have to learn to listen really well and uh, be extremely spontaneous and it is actually the listening skills. You've got to be really, really involved in what they're saying. Yeah. Well, you know how I told you it was going to be named Sid and Gabriella Science Kids? <laughs> well, it's not. Um, I think it's like a lot of other performing arts with, you know, groups of people like dancers and, and people have to move in sync and, and move together and, you know, sort of create a piece of art in sync. It's that same skill set where you really just have to be in tune with the other person's, you know, emotional state, movements, the whole, the whole thing. Really, we get to be in tune. It's great because, I mean, we're the same character or the same person. What is a typical day like for you at the Henson Digital Puppetry Studio? Um, it's fun. It's <laughs> come into work and play. It's a great job. and office buildings are the world's biggest producers of electronic waste. It is important for any school or business to pursue the correct avenues for e-waste disposal so that discarded devices don't finish up in landfills or solid waste streams to be broken down in environmentally irresponsible ways. When discarding e-waste, check if the manufacturer has a take-back program and if not, you should then find your closest legitimate e-waste recycler to safely dispose of your device.